Alabama's Supreme Court has ruled that fertilized eggs have the same rights as children. It's Wednesday, February 21st. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, the ruling in Alabama means discarding fertilized eggs there would be a crime. It may radically change how IVF works, how cost-effective it is, and how effective it is in allowing people to achieve their dream of parenthood. Also this hour, Missouri prosecutors have charged two adults in the shooting that killed one person and injured 22 others at last week's Kansas City Chiefs Super Bowl rally. Plus, more southern states are talking about expanding Medicaid to cover low-income residents after resisting that option for a decade. The numbers show that we're being penny-wise and foolish if we don't go forward with this. Sunny in 30s today. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Korva Coleman. Israeli and Palestinian leaders have reacted strongly to the U.S. veto of a U.N. Security Council resolution calling for a ceasefire in Gaza. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley reports this was the third such U.S. veto. The vote in the 15-member Security Council was 13 to 1 with the U.K. abstaining. Israel's U.N. ambassador says a ceasefire would only allow Hamas to regroup, rearm, and attempt their next genocide against Israelis. Hamas is calling the Biden administration a partner in a war of extermination against children and defenseless civilians in the Gaza Strip. Palestinian Authority head Mahmoud Abbas said U.S. policy makes it complicit in war crimes committed by the Israeli occupation. The U.S. is pushing an alternative resolution calling for a temporary ceasefire in Gaza linked to the release of all hostages and the lifting of all restrictions on humanitarian aid. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, Tel Aviv. House Republicans will question President Biden's brother James behind closed doors today. It's part of their impeachment inquiry against the president. Republicans have shown no evidence to prove any wrongdoing by the president. A federal magistrate judge has ordered the release of an FBI informant ahead of his trial. Alexander Smirnov is accused of lying about President Biden and using Russian intelligence to peddle the false stories. Former President Donald Trump has compared the criminal cases against him to the imprisonment and death of Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny. NPR Stephen Fowler reports on the comments Trump made at a town hall yesterday. Trump faces multiple court cases across multiple jurisdictions, including a civil fraud trial in New York where a judge found Trump lied about his wealth. In a South Carolina town hall with Fox News' Laura Ingram Tuesday, Trump compared his situation to the late Russian dissident Alexei Navalny. It's a lot it of, is a, lot a of form of Navalny. It is a form of uh, communism or fascism. Navalny died in a remote Russian prison last week, with President Joe Biden and others blaming Vladimir Putin for his death. Trump also said his cases, including two stemming from failed efforts to overturn the 2020 election, were political persecution, though sidestepped a question asking if he viewed himself a political prisoner. Stephen Fowler, NPR News, Atlanta. The Biden administration is providing nearly $6 billion in additional funding to jurisdictions across the country. They can upgrade their water systems. Vice President Harris, speaking in Pittsburgh, says the funding comes from the bipartisan infrastructure law. Part of the beauty of what we have all done together is these investments will create jobs, good-paying union jobs. Jobs for plumbers and pipe fitters and laborers. The money will help states remove lead from pipes and upgrade sewage systems. 
This is NPR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. This is WBUR in Boston. Governor Maura Healy says Steward Healthcare should leave the hospital business in Massachusetts. She's ordering the struggling for-profit company to share financial information with the state and step up patient safety efforts. WBUR's Priyanka Dale-McCluskey reports. The governor detailed her demands in a stern letter to Steward CEO Ralph Delatore. Healy says it's time for new owners to take over the Steward Hospitals, and she gave company executives three days to disclose financial documents that they have long held secret. Healy called on Delatore to ensure safe staffing and supply levels. Her administration is monitoring Steward Hospitals daily. The governor says Steward executives have failed to be truthful or responsive about their business plans. Steward officials say they are cooperating with the administration. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Priyanka Dayal-McCluskey. Police are investigating allegations of racist bullying at Southwick Regional School in Western Mass. A student there says the bullying included a mock slave auction of black students in the school on social media. The president of the Greater Springfield NAACP calls the incidents malicious and deeply concerning. The Hampton District Attorney's Office is also investigating. The state is in line for $151 million from the federal government to improve drinking water and update its wastewater and stormwater systems. Bonnie Heipel is the commissioner of the State Department of Environmental Protection. She says some of the money will go toward upgrading drinking water supplies that are at risk of chemical contamination. These are things like PFAS that we're finding in drinking water and throughout our environment, but particularly concerning when it's in the water that our residents are drinking. PFAS chemicals are man-made and don't break down in the environment. They've been linked to severe illnesses. Other parts of the funding will deal with high-intensity storms that create wastewater issues. Those are becoming more frequent because of climate change. The Cohasset man charged with murdering his wife last year has been sentenced to prison for a separate crime. Brian Walsh will serve three years and a month for trying to sell counterfeit Andy Warhol paintings. A judge also ordered him to pay $475,000 in restitution. Walsh sold several fake paintings for tens of thousands of dollars each. It's 7.06. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include Charles Schwab, offering investors choices like full-service wealth management, advice, investing, and trading on Thinkorswim. Learn more at schwab.com. And the listeners who support this NPR station. The Bruins play the Edmonton Oilers tonight at 10 in Canada. Boston looks to keep its six-game winning streak alive when the Celtics take on the Bulls in Chicago tomorrow night at 8. And longtime Patriots special team star Matthew Slater has announced his retirement. He played all 16 of his NFL seasons with the Pats. Mostly sunny today. We'll have highs in the upper 30s. Clouds move in tonight and lows will be in the mid-20s. Clearing overnight for a mostly sunny day tomorrow. Highs will be near 40. It's 25 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. When Alexei Navalny died in Arctic prison, Russia lost its most visible foe of Vladimir Putin's government. 
Other dissidents say they'll keep fighting. Liberal politician Boris Nadezhdin is a Ukraine war critic. He was barred from running in next month's presidential election despite a petition drive that had Russians standing in line in the bitter cold to add their signatures. I spoke with Nadezhdin after he lost an appeal that concluded too many of his signatures were invalid, and I asked him for his reaction to the death of Navalny. It was during uh, interview to some uh, media when I was said that Navalny has died, and I even have no words what to say, and I stopped the interview. It was very big shock for me, of course. He was and he is the symbol of Russian opposition. And of course, it's difficult and dangerous job to be in opposition. I understand all the risk. I think Alexei Navalny was a very strong critic of Putin personally. I suppose this was the main reason of his problems with Russian system. I've heard you say that you don't criticize Vladimir Putin personally, that you just criticize his policies or his decisions. But isn't that criticizing Putin when you criticize what he's done? Uh, yes. I never criticize Putin personally. I criticize only his decisions for more than 20 years, by the way. But I still alive and I am not in prison now. Maybe one reason is I never criticize Putin, but maybe other reason, because Alexei Navalny is uh, young, and I'm from the generation of modern Russian leaders, and I worked with many key figures. You have said that you are not in support of the war that Vladimir Putin is waging against Ukraine, but what other policies or decisions do you disagree with Vladimir Putin on? I'm sure that the conflict in Ukraine, it was a dramatic, the fatal mistake of Putin. And uh, the influence of this mistake will be very long and very bad for Russia. But for the quarter of century Putin is in power, he destroyed the key institutions of modern state in Russia. We have no independent courts, we have no independent parliament, we have no free media, we have no free and fair elections. And then we spent a lot of money for military tasks, but we spent less and less money for education, less and less money for healthcare. You mentioned how Vladimir Putin has not allowed for free and fair elections in Russia. So then why try to run as you have attempted to? I see no other way to change the politics and to change the power in Russia. I understand that elections now is not very free and fair, but other ways to change the power is much worse. Do you think the attention that you've gotten lately might be dangerous for you? Mm -hmm. We have the Russian proverb, if you're afraid of wolves, you should not go to the forest. Did you understand me? Yes, I, I, I understood what you meant. Okay. So you still have hope then for Russia's future. You have hope for your future. I have to do my job. For 30 years, I'm in Russian politics and for 20 years, I'm in opposition. I understand that I have no more 30 years because I'm 60 years old now. I think I have maybe 10 or 15 years and I'll try to do my best. My aim is that Russia should be 
peaceful and free country, and I'm absolutely sure that it's quite possible to achieve in this distance, like 10 or 15 years. How likely do you think the people in Russia will demand change? The key point is the understanding of young people. In these long lines of people staying on a deep freeze sometimes to support me, to give the signatures, the people was very young. The young people is the future of country. And the speeches of Putin about Ukraine, about the history, the speeches is not understandable for young people, absolutely. And so this politics of Putin has no future at all. That is Boris Nadezhdin. Boris, thank you very much for sharing your thoughts. Okay, bye. A ruling by the Alabama Supreme Court gives fertilized eggs the same rights as children. The decision has repercussions for reproductive health throughout the state. Reporter Melanie Peoples in Birmingham has been following the developments. Melanie, how did uh, Alabama's highest court get at this decision? Well, it's all about these three couples in Alabama who had frozen embryos stored at a facility in Mobile. Everything was going along fine until another patient somehow got access to the frozen embryos and destroyed them. So the three couples to whom the embryos belong then filed a lawsuit for wrongful death. Well, a lower court ruled they couldn't do that because they said the embryos weren't people. And the Alabama Supreme Court ruled, oh, yes, they are. The state Supreme Court went so far as to call them extra uterine children. And of course, this ruling is causing a lot of concern and confusion for couples for whom in vitro fertilization is their best chance to get pregnant. All right. How were Alabama's restrictions on abortion access applied in this case? Well, Alabama bans abortion at any stage of pregnancy with no exceptions for rape or incest. In fact, the state has gone so far as to arrest women who either miscarry or engage in risky behaviors that could cause damage to a fetus. You know, the belief that life begins at conception is paramount to the Alabama abortion law. Moreover, the chief justice in this ruling says destroying that life would, quote, incur the wrath of a holy God. And the ruling wasn't even close. The judges ruled eight to one to create this class of extra uterine children. Other states have limited wrongful death statutes to apply only to fetuses 24 weeks old or more. That's around the time that most fetuses could be considered to be viable outside the womb. All right, so given these new restrictions, what are the options for fertility clinics? Not many. Uh, Right now, Alabama's Medical Association says they have grave concerns about the ruling, and some clinics are saying that they would have to shut down. You know, for IVF or in vitro fertilization, fertility clinics in the U.S. prefer to harvest as many eggs as they can at a time from a woman in order to give them the best odds at pregnancy. And unless lawmakers act, that's a process that is not likely to continue in Alabama. Uh, Melanie, any opportunity to, say, roll this back? You know, it's really up to Alabama lawmakers what happens next. The case is unlikely to be appealed to a higher court because it was the state Supreme Court ruling based on a state law. Critics have long urged the legislature to spell out exactly who all falls under the state's wrongful death statute. 
And it's clear that the state Supreme Court says life begins at fertilization. And it doesn't matter whether that life is in a woman's uterus or in a freezer in a fertility clinic in Mobile. And should the state legislature fail to define that, it could soon become a crime in Alabama to destroy frozen embryos, which could ultimately mean them being frozen forever because it's not clear yet if those frozen embryos could even be donated to other states or to science because, again, they have the same protection as children. The irony here is that the very lawsuit filed by the three couples who were upset when their embryos were destroyed may end up making it way more difficult for Alabamians who are struggling to conceive naturally. That's Melanie Peoples in Birmingham. Melanie, thanks. Thank you. Two men have been charged with murder in a mass shooting that took place at the end of the Super Bowl victory rally in Kansas City last week. Prosecutors say it was a mundane argument that spun out of control. Frank Morris of member station KCUR reports. Gunfire. Lots of shots touched off a panic in the crowd that ended what had been a joyous celebration. Almost two dozen people were hit, almost half of them kids. Lisa Lopez-Galvan, a 43-year-old mother of two and a popular DJ, was killed. It wasn't like a lot of mass shootings where someone sets out to murder as many people as possible. Jackson County Prosecutor Gene Peters Baker says it started when a young man named Lindell Mays had words with a stranger. That argument very quickly escalated to Mays drawing his firearm, a handgun. Almost immediately, almost immediately, others pulled their firearms. Baker says that included Dominic Miller. She says he's the one who killed Lopez Galvan. Both Mays and Miller were shot in the melee. Mays more than once. They've been hospitalized since. Both men faced felony murder charges. Two people under 18 were detained at the rally. They've been charged as juveniles with weapons offenses. Baker says more charges are coming. We seek to hold every shooter accountable for their actions on that day. Every single one. So while we're not there yet on every single individual, we're going to get there. Kansas City community activist Pat Clark expects justice in this case because this shooting took place at a big public event with lots of cooperative witnesses all around. But Clark says shootings with four or more victims in urban core Kansas City don't always make much of an impression. It's not uncommon. We have mass shootings around here all the time. Some make the news, some don't. Kansas City broke a record for killings last year, 185. And Baker says 67 of them started the same way the shooting at the Super Bowl victory celebration did, with an argument. For NPR News, I'm Frank Morris in Kansas City. This is NPR News. Good morning. Thanks for starting your Wednesday with 90.9 WBUR. We're following news this morning of a ruling by the Alabama Supreme Court that fertilized eggs have the same rights as children. Also, two men have been charged with murder in the shooting death of a woman at a Kansas City Super Bowl celebration. And coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, a judge investigating the 2021 assassination of Haiti's president has indicted dozens of people, including the late president's widow, a former prime minister, and the former national police chief. It's 719. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Leslie University. Put your creativity to work with a fine arts degree from Leslie University. Invest in your passion at leslie.edu. And Boston Lyric Opera, presenting Eurydice. This March, travel to the underworld and experience love's unexpected brutality and endearing beauty. You follow the news every day on WBUR. But how well do you really know the news? It's time to play the puzzle. One across, digital trash. Five letters, south of Ecuador. Play the WBUR crossword puzzle anytime at WBUR.org slash fun. Five across, biggest toy maker. Four down, rock concert pit. Play the WBUR crossword free every day at WBUR.org slash fun. Highs in the upper 30s today under mostly sunny skies. Tonight it grows cloudy and temperatures fall to the mid-20s. Skies clear a bit overnight and we'll have a mostly sunny day tomorrow with high temperatures around 40. It's 25 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fidelity Investments. A dedicated advisor can help create a wealth plan for a full financial picture. More at fidelity.com wealth. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. From the Walton Family Foundation, working to create access to opportunity for people and communities by tackling tough social and environmental problems. More information is at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. From Cunard, Sailing to over 250 destinations with Queen Mary II, Queen Victoria, Queen Elizabeth, and Queen Anne. Each voyage is dedicated to a world of fine dining and entertainment. Cunar.com. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Ian e. Martinez. And I'm Leila Fadel. The body is an unmarked grave. With this bold, evocative declaration, poet Omatara James opens her debut book, Song of My Softening. She's the daughter of Nigerian and Trinidadian immigrants, born in Britain and raised mainly in the United States. Tender, beautiful, stark, painful. These are just a few words that come to mind when reading this collection. James is a two-time Pushcart Prize nominee, a Lambda Literary Fellow, and she joins me now to talk about her collection of poems, Omatara James. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. I want to start with the title, Song of My Softening. And the way the book is structured, it feels a bit like a journey through your life from adolescence as a Black queer woman is that what it is? It feels almost journal-like in moments. It is definitely a reflection of how I respond to the world mm. through the lens of my understanding, through my life experiences. But what the work of the book is, is to transform my experiences into art. And when I titled the book, song of my softening that's because it takes a lot more strength to be vulnerable than it does to be hard yeah. it takes courage and the poem lends itself to softness because the poem begins in the body song of my softening is a love song to interiority and to anyone who has faced the challenges of life 
and done their best. Mm, I love that. It's harder to be vulnerable than it is to be hard. That's so true. Mm. And there is a lot of, of pain in the poetry, but like you said, triumph and celebration. I'm thinking of some of your poems, like Morbid Subtraction, where you take kind of what many people would think of as an insult and you flip it on its head. If you could talk about exploring the words that way and that poem in particular. Yeah, you know, so much of my book is about working with what you have. And so much of what I have been dealt has been love, but also it's been violation. It's been a lot of prejudice. When it comes to fatness, it's something that we don't really see in art and media rendered by the person who is fat. Fat people are usually objectified. We are pathologized, problematized, and really we have so much value to add to the world. So what I aim to do is to show and render the truth of my experience in a way that speaks back to the oppression of the experience. Do you have the book with you by any chance? Oh, I do. Okay, great. I was wondering if you could read Heaven Be a Sturdy Chair. Yes. Heaven Be a Sturdy Chair. When I show up to the reading, it's not to talk to you. I'm cruising for stability. A pound of fat is three times larger than muscle. Fat demands space, describes it. Fat belts a show tune plus an R&B, plus a ballad at karaoke. My fat never goes home alone. Think about your last moment of pleasure. Multiply it by three. I mean, in this poem, fat is the hero, and I love it. <laughs> Was this a declaration? It's a declaration of not allowing someone else's definition of you be the gesture of your life. Before I can think about what it means to be fat, I need to explore how it feels. And that's what I use language and breath in my poetry to do. And then I can proclaim it. Also, I wanted to say that the truth about living in a body that there's all this pejorative chatter around yeah. is that shame is a real part of the experience. One of my favorite poetry teachers, Jericho Brown, says something about shame that I've never forgotten, which is when we engage with shame, we are believing the lies that people tell us about ourselves. Mm. And there is nothing more worth the risk of telling your story than to eradicate that shame, to speak back to it and begin to claim radical love. Mm. It's like a big therapy session. I mean, <laughs> really, is. I mean, because I think so many people are going to be listening to you and I'm listening to you and reading the poetry and having my own moments of reclamation, you know, I mean, as a woman, as somebody who grows up not skinny in a world that tells yeah. you, you need to be small, you need to look this way, you need to be lighter, you need to be, 
I just, mm-hmm. how did you get to a point where you said, okay, radical reclamation, I'm writing it all down. I'm sharing it all. The way I got to it was through the work of the poets who have come before me. When I write in my poem, Bodies Like Oceans, I say, I clawed my way out of your clean love. And what I mean by that is I had to imagine a future in which I could exist and in which I could be free. Poetry has been a tool of my own liberation because it was modeled to me that way through exemplar poets, exemplar Black poets, exemplar queer poets. And that is the discourse that exists between my poems and theirs. Omatara James, congratulations on your book and thank you for that message. Thank you so much. It's been an honor. That was Omatara James. Her poetry collection is called Song of My Softening. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next, then coming up at 7.45 on WBUR's Morning Edition. Two Howard University students have formed the first figure skating team at an HBCU. The team makes its debut at a competition this weekend. It's 7.29. Join us at City Space on Wednesday, March 6th, a few days before the Oscars, for a conversation with New Yorker writer Michael Shulman. He'll be talking about his book, Chronicling the Last Century of Scandals, Drama, and Secrets from Hollywood's Biggest Night. Tickets are at wbur.org slash events. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Road Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org slash learning. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. The U.S. military says Houthi rebels in Yemen have attacked another commercial ship in the Red Sea. As NPR's Giles Snyder reports, this latest attack comes amid a U.S.-led effort to deter aggression in the region by Iranian-backed groups. The U.S. began launching airstrikes against Houthi targets last month to protect Red Sea shipping, but the Houthis remain an ongoing threat. According to a U.S. military statement, this latest missile attack caused minor damage but no crew injuries on board the Greek-flagged U.S.-owned MBC champion. The ship was attacked as it was making its way to Yemen's port of Aden to deliver humanitarian aid. The U.S. Supreme Court is about to take up a case challenging a federal rule intended to limit ozone air pollution. NPR's Carrie Johnson says several states and industry groups are fighting the rule. Ohio, Indiana, and West Virginia, along with some companies and trade groups, want these justices to block the rule while they appeal. They say this rule is a disaster and a shell of itself since it was meant to cover 23 states and right now covers only about half of them because of other court cases around the country. They say the rule imposes financial burdens on them and that it's unreasonable. President Biden is on a three-day campaign swing in California. This is NPR News from Washington. This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shinoy. 
About half of students at Newton Public Schools were absent yesterday. That's as the district holds classes during February school vacation this week to make up missed days due to the recent teacher strike. WBUR's Carrie Young reports. The district is using four days of February vacation week to ensure they meet the state mandate of at least 180 school days. Parent Rakashi Chand says her high school-aged kids didn't cover any new material in class yesterday, but it felt mostly normal. It seems like it was fun to be at school, a little mellow maybe. Parents who opted to go ahead with their vacation plans and keep their kids out of class, like Jessica Alpert-Silber, says the school has been pretty understanding. I felt very supported. I know it's not ideal, but I didn't feel at all that my kids were going to suffer. Students who are absent during this makeup week will not be punished for missing classes. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Carrie Young. A group of teachers and educators are filing two ballot initiatives that could change the state's standardized test requirements. Advocates for the change say the tests, known as the MCAS, do not accurately measure a student's academic performance. One initiative would remove the MCAS as a graduation requirement. The Cape Cod Times reports the other would allow individual districts to determine if a student has satisfied curriculum requirements. More than 100 people who have helped to fight fires on or around Joint Base Cape Cod are joining a national lawsuit over exposure to toxic forever chemicals. The chemicals are known as PFAS. They're commonly used in firefighting foam and are linked to health problems. Those include cancer, thyroid issues, and fertility problems. Attorneys behind the case hope to bring it to trial next year. It's 733. WBUR supporters include MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software for technical computing and model-based design. Accelerating the pace of discovery in engineering and science, MathWorks.com. The New England Patriots are saying goodbye to Matthew Slater. Slater says it's time to hang up his cleats after 16 seasons in the NFL, all with the Pats. The special team star announced his retirement yesterday. Meanwhile, the Boston Celtics will try to keep their winning streak going when they take on the Bulls in Chicago tomorrow night at 8. Mostly clear skies today. Highs will be in the upper 30s. It grows a bit overcast tonight as temperatures fall to the mid-20s. Then mostly clear skies again tomorrow and we'll have highs near 40. It's 26 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Easy Cater, Committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 find food for meetings and company events with online ordering and 24 7 live support. Learn more at easycater.com. And from Procter Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at alignprobiotics.com. This is NPR. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. I'm E. Martinez. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Some of the people closest to the late leader of Haiti, Jovenel Moise, are indicted in his murder. A judge who's responsible for investigating the 2021 assassination has accused dozens of people. They include Moise's widow, Martine Moise, the ex-Prime Minister Claude Joseph, and the former chief of Haiti's National Police. Widlar Marincou is the editor-in-chief of Aibo Post. He also reports for the Washington Post, and he's on the line. Welcome to the program. Thank you. What is the judge's narrative, the judge's story of this killing? 
Well, the story that this report by the judge um, tells is a story of a president who was surrounded by multiple people who were vying to replace him. He did not use this word, but you can say traitors, um, who um, seized the opportunity and organized his killing. And among these people, the head of the Haitian National Police at the time, and he was someone who, you know, heeded the first moments of the investigation, Mr. Leon Schall, who actually is an ambassador uh, for Haiti. Wait, that last part, did you say that one of the suspects here is a person who at one point was investigating the killing? Yes, absolutely. Uh, Mr. Leon Charles was the top police uh, in Haiti at that time, and uh, he was in the vicinity of the house of the president when he was killed, and he was the one who oversaw the report of the judicial police that was sent to the Haitian justice system for further investigation. And this individual, uh, Mr. Leon Charles, is a diplomat for Haiti. So we're talking about an inside job that seems to involve almost everybody on the inside, including the president's wife, who herself was supposedly injured in the attack at their home. So how, according to the judge, can it be shown that she was part of the conspiracy? Well, this is a report that, you know, people need to take, like people are saying online, with a grain of salt. We are talking about the fact that the judge did not find, um, you know, a way to follow the money, apparently. This brutal murder uh, needed lots of financing. And we have the fact that uh, many of the folks that are implicated in this murder, allegedly, choose not to speak with the judge because allegedly they believe he was not an independent judge. So all these things, you know, raise many questions um, about the capacity of the judge to conduct an investigation that was independent. It is, of course, an indictment, which presumably would point toward a trial. Is there any chance of these charges being heard in a trial? According to Haitian law, um, this report needs to be sent to the folks that are indicted. They have about 10 days to appeal and the prosecutor can also appeal. And, and after this process plays out, we will have a trial. But I mean, when you know what, what I know about Haitian justice system, it's, it's going to be a long process. It can take months and maybe years for this process to play out completely. Widlar Marincou is editor-in-chief of Aibo Post in Port-au-Prince, Haiti. Thanks for the update on what is known so far about these accusations. Thank you. A decade after the Affordable Care Act became law, 10 states have declined to expand Medicaid. Most are in the South, where Republicans control the legislatures, but now GOP power brokers in Mississippi, Alabama, and Georgia suggest they might be open to expanding Medicaid coverage. Here's WABE's Sam Greenglass. Donnie Lambeth is a Republican state representative in North Carolina. He spent almost a decade trying to convince his colleagues in the GOP-controlled legislature to expand Medicaid. It was not a very pleasant journey early on because I was one of the few Republicans. My party did not accept it. But I would tell you, you need to be patient, but don't give up. Over plates of fried chicken and mashed potatoes, Lambeth told a recent gathering of Georgia lawmakers, many Republicans, that several times he almost did give up. 
but he stuck with it, telling colleagues stories he heard from people around the state. Tree farmers in Ash County, the strawberry farmers down east, the theme that they all told me, we don't have health insurance, but we have a family farm that we're going to lose if we were to have a catastrophic event. Now 600,000 low-income North Carolinians are eligible for coverage. Expansion in Georgia would cover roughly 400,000 people. But for many Republicans, Medicaid expansion is still a toxic phrase tied closely to former President Obama. So some GOP-led states have put their own spin on the program. Republican lawmakers in Georgia are now eyeing a model deployed by Arkansas, where some Medicaid expansion dollars are used to buy private insurance plans. Cindy Gillespie, the former Arkansas health secretary, told a group of Georgia policymakers that her state's approach infused money into rural areas over the last decade. In Arkansas and the surrounding states, you had 58 hospitals close. None are in Arkansas. In rural Georgia, nine hospitals closed, and free clinics have been forced to fill the void. Nurse Glenda Battle volunteers at a clinic in South Georgia. Our patients depend on us for their routine checkups and medications. They have higher morbidity and mortality rates. Battle testified at a recent legislative hearing. Medicaid expansion is an economic agent. It will allow struggling hospitals to remain open to serve the uninsured low income in their area and keep others employed. Many Republicans have come to acknowledge these gaps. But the response so far from Georgia Republican Governor Brian Kemp, a limited expansion with a work requirement, has enrolled only about 2,300 people since it launched last year. That's about half a percent of what full Medicaid expansion could cover and at a higher cost per person. But Kemp says he's not yet interested in full expansion. You'll have to talk to the people that are proposing that. I mean, those are not my proposals. Meanwhile, Georgia has left billions of federal dollars on the table. The numbers show that we're being penny-wise and pound-foolish if we don't go forward with this. At the luncheon, Georgia Republican Senator Chuck Hofstetler says Georgia has attracted billions in new investments from companies that make batteries, solar panels, and electric vehicles. But he worries it could become harder to compete for jobs with states like North Carolina that have expanded Medicaid. We need workers. We need healthy workers. The number one issue we have in Georgia right now is workers. For now, a lot of the recent rumblings about Medicaid expansion have been just talk. And this week, top Republicans in the Georgia legislature suggested they plan to delay action for another year. But as more Republican states sign on for Medicaid expansion, a growing number of lawmakers believe the question is not if, but when. For NPR News, I'm Sam Greenglass in Atlanta. This is NPR News. Coming up at the top of the hour here on WBUR's Morning Edition, a key environmental effort to improve air quality and protect people from downwind pollution is facing a legal challenge at the U.S. Supreme Court from several states and energy companies. Mostly sunny and upper 30s today. Tonight, mostly cloudy and mid-20s. Tomorrow, mostly sunny and near 40. It's 26 degrees in Boston.
WBUR supporters include Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com, member FDIC, and Uncommon Feasts, offering full-service culinary event catering for your distinctive social and corporate gatherings. Gather around. Let's feast. High mortgage rates are keeping buyers and sellers out of the housing market in Boston. According to a new report from the Greater Boston Association of Realtors, the number of single-family homes sold in the region last month was only slightly more than it was last year. Sales are also down 30 percent overall compared to January of 2022. The group says despite high interest rates, buyer interest is still strong, but more houses need to go on the market to meet demand. UMass Amherst is getting nearly $12 million in funding to create an offshore wind research center. The Academic Center for Reliability of Offshore Wind is getting the money from the Federal Energy Department. Those involved tell the Boston Business Journal the center will focus on developing new offshore projects. A longtime Boston-area beauty school is going out of business. The State Board of Registration of Cosmetology and Barbering sent a letter to students at the Elizabeth Grady School of Aesthetics in Medford last month. It told them to prepare to transfer their credits. The board did not say why it decided to tell the school to close. It's 744. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. From the Walton Family Foundation, working to create access to opportunity for people and communities by tackling tough social and environmental problems. More information is at waltonfamilyfoundation.org and from the Doris Duke Foundation. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez. And I'm Leila Faldil. Howard University's ice skating team is set to make history this weekend. The first historically black university figure skating team is about to take part in its first intercollegiate competition. NPR's Adam Bierne laced up his skates and took to the ice to meet the team's founders. In the middle of a small outdoor rink in Washington, D.C., Maya James and Cheyenne Walker are showing off their scratch spins. Arms above their head, they turn like a top, slowly at first, before getting faster and faster. Both have been skating since the age of seven. But for James, growing up in Chicago, it wasn't always easy. Because it wasn't many people that looked like me doing it, so when I would go to a new rink... Or even sometimes in my home rink, I'll be the only black person on the ice. And it kind of felt like this eyes were on me. Cheyenne Walker had a much better experience getting into the sport in New York. I was fortunate enough to be in figure skating in Harlem, which was unique of its kind because it was an organization for women of color. So I grew up seeing women of color and people of color skate and being present in the sport. But when it came time to go to college, Walker faced a tough choice. It was very difficult to figure out like whether I wanted to go to school and continue to skate or if I wanted to go to a school that I knew was meant for me. I ultimately ended up choosing Howard because Howard just felt like home when I visited it. It might have felt like home, but she was missing skating. 
So it was James. She DM'd me and was like, I'm thinking about starting a club. So when Maya reached out to me, it just felt like fate. After a couple of months of paperwork, the Howard University ice skating team was born, with James as president and Walker as vice president. But that was the easy part. The biggest challenge has been finding ice time, says James. There's only one rink in D.C., and it's a little ways out from the Howard campus, and it's also closed for renovation right now. So for now, the team has to travel to neighbouring Maryland to train. And to teach brand new members how to skate, they grab an hour of time on this small public rink on Monday nights. It's a far cry from the resources some of the colleges they'll be facing this weekend have, Walker says. We're probably going to be competing against people who skate on the ice maybe two or three times a week. We didn't really have that opportunity to get consistent ice time until this semester, and it's only one month. That's one of the reasons James says they're not putting too much pressure on themselves for Saturday's competition. Since we're like a baby organization, I'm not too concerned with winning as of right now. But I'm just happy to be there, you know, and be included into the collegiate figure skating space. One of the team's coaches, Jordan McCreary-Graham, feels the same way. It's honestly going to be a challenge to just be on the same ice as collegiate skaters that are various levels will be an experience in itself. She admires what James and Walker have achieved. I went to an HBCU and I tried to recommend it and they're like, what? Black people don't skate? So having that actual thing in an HBCU is going to start a trend for other HBCUs to do it. That's not sunk in with Maya James yet. I don't think it's hit me yet how big it really is. I'm just happy that we actually were able to, you know, move this thing forward. This, like, small idea really turned into a big one. One that Cheyenne Walker hopes will leave a legacy. It's such an amazing thing to see how we're bringing people into the sport and really diversifying the sport. And at the end of the day, that's really what the goal is. Inspiring a new generation of black skaters all over America. Adam Bierne, NPR News, Washington. This is NPR News. It's a Wednesday on WBUR. Coming up in about a half hour here on Morning Edition, it's the year of the dragon, and that usually means more babies being born in China. But many young people there are now choosing not to have children. We'll look at why. It's 749. WBUR supporters include Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge. Real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com and H&H, the Handel and Haydn Society. Harry Christophers returns to lead H&H as Conductor Laureate this weekend at Symphony Hall. Visit HandelandHaydn.org. This week, China's Coast Guard began patrolling the waters near the Pasquadors, or Penghu, the tiny archipelago of islands tucked between Taiwan and China. The fishers of Penghu see firsthand the tensions between the two places. Hear that story on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Wednesday morning. The White House is approving $1.2 billion in student debt cancellation for more than 150,000 borrowers. House Republicans will question President Biden's brother, James, later today in a closed-door impeachment inquiry. And the U.K. is freezing the assets of six Russian prison bosses following the death of opposition leader Alexei Navalny. 
Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. WBUR supporters include Liz Linder Photography, creating portraits and stories for life and work. Pictures talk at lizlinder.com. Upper 30s and mostly sunny today. It grows cloudy tonight and we'll have temperatures in the mid-20s. Near 40 tomorrow and mostly sunny again. It's 26 degrees in Boston. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm A. Martinez. Efforts to ban books have sparked a counter-movement to find new ways to keep those books in circulation. In Texas, where hundreds of school book bans have been reported in recent years, some teachers and students have been building underground libraries. Here's NPR's Netta Ulabi. Three teenagers are giggling at a coffee shop in Texas about what it takes to get their hands on books. These are special books. (laughs) We're in the far, far suburbs of Houston at a coffee shop so nondescript it looks like an ugly Starbucks knockoff. These three 17-year-old seniors brought me here to talk about a secret bookshelf in their teacher's classroom. It's really low-key, very undercover. How undercover? She tells like a select few of students who she feels might need a book to get them into reading. These students have a lot in common besides attending the same public school. We're all minorities. And they're all queer. The secret bookshelf, they say, is the one place where they can easily find books that give them characters they can immediately relate to. Just to see, like, Latinos, LGBTQ, that's not something, like, you really see in our community, or it's not very well represented at all. Well, I am a young, black lesbian, and I don't meet people like myself in my day-to-day life either, so reading these characters in these books, it really gives me hope. You will not hear the names of these students. NPR has confirmed their identities, but they worry about the consequences of going public with their secret classroom bookshelf. We don't want to jeopardize our teacher in any way, or the bookshelf, or the district, or the school. Or themselves. Sharing such books in a Texas public school has felt dangerous for the past few years. These students do not want to draw the ire of antagonistic activists, or put their teacher at risk. She is a longtime public school employee, a Texas native, and like her state, her secret bookshelf is enormous. At this point, I may have about maybe 600 books. They spill from two big bookshelves in her classroom into a bunch of plastic crates. I'll never have enough bookshelves. This teacher started her secret library a couple of years ago, after a Texas lawmaker named Matt Krause sent public schools a list of 850 books he wanted banned because he felt they would make students uncomfortable about race and sex. That made this teacher furious. The books that make you uncomfortable are the books that make you think, and isn't that what school's supposed to do? It's supposed to make you think. So she swung into action. First, she called friends. I was like, y'all, I have this project. I want his impact to be that it's actually expanding kids' access to people that are different for them. Then she talked to her students. She gave one of them a job. Here's that student remembering the assignment. Can you go through the list? Can you see like what books you'd recommend for us to add to the library? And then she gave me her card to buy them. Wait a minute, she literally was like, here are the books we're not supposed to have, go get them. Yeah, it was a lot of gay books, I remember that. (laughs) This student has recently graduated. In high school, he came out as a transgender man to his parents. I wouldn't call them supportive, so I had to do a lot of sneaking around. Including sneaking books featuring romances between queer characters. Some on the bookshelf are about contemporary high school students now. Some, says the teacher, are queer classics. Yes, I throw James Baldwin at them whenever I can. 
Giovanni's Room is really popular. That book is so wonderful. It's about travel and his identity and confusion. It's so wonderful. I reached out to former Texas lawmaker Matt Krause for comment repeatedly and got no response. He's currently running for county commissioner in Fort Worth. Here are some students talking about the books he's been trying to ban they've read from the secret bookshelf. There was 1984 by George Orwell. Love that book. I love dystopian novels. My Heart Underwater by L'Oreal Flores Fantazzo. That was banned strongly because of the LGBTQ main character. And here's another student. Some of the books that I've read are books like Hood Feminism, Poet X, Gabby, A Girl in Pieces. Like books that have really helped me come to sense with feminism, how I grew up. I just see a lot of, like, especially in my community, a lot of women being talked down upon. And those books, it was really nice to read and be educated on. To be clear, this public school with a secret bookshelf in Texas, it's not in a fancy part of town. Many students there do not have parents who can drop everything to get their kids' books about being queer. Here's the teacher. Oh, I have taught kids whose parents have never set foot in a classroom. They are from small towns in other countries, and their parents were farmers. I've had kids whose names were not spelled correctly because their parents were illiterate. You know, a lot of the kids have parents that did not go to college. A high amount of kids who are on free and reduced lunch. A spokesperson for the school district where this teacher works said they prefer not to comment on the issue. The transgender student worries about how much worse it's getting in Texas for teachers who want to help students like him. Because of the way the laws are going for trans people especially, it could become illegal to the point where it could be assumed that she's grooming kids. And that would be terrible because that's not what she's doing at all. A Texas teacher was fired last year for assigning a book to her students. It was a graphic novel about Anne Frank that showed Anne having a romantic daydream about another girl. There are other documented cases in Texas of teachers leaving jobs because of pressure over challenged books. One local Freedom to Read activist described the atmosphere as chilling. That's what makes the underground bookshelf started by this teacher remarkable, says Casey Meehan of the free speech advocacy group PEN America. Yes, that is, in fact, incredible, and it's really courageous. It's not wrong for students to be worried, Mian says, given how much things have escalated in Texas in recent years. Parents are taking books from schools and bringing them to police and sheriff's offices and accusing librarians and educators of providing sexually explicit material to students. It does make me nervous. I mean... This is absolutely silly that I'm not free to talk about books without giving my name and worrying about repercussions because history has taught us this lesson over and over again. The teacher who runs the secret bookshelf of banned books. You know, I intend for this library to just keep growing. And at some point, she hopes it will no longer have to be a secret. I do believe that book banning is going to go away. I think it's kind of the last grasp of people trying to maintain control because they know it's slipping. That's what I tell myself anyway. Late last year, the Texas State Board of Education passed a policy prohibiting what it calls, quote, sexually explicit, pervasively vulgar, or educationally unsuitable books in public schools. Critics say that language is dangerously vague. And although parts of that policy were just blocked by federal court, it was not overturned. And that language was left untouched. Netta Ulibi, NPR News. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Martinez. And I'm Leila Fadel. 
We'll have two more mostly sunny days before some rain on Friday, and then the sun returns for the weekend. Today, mostly clear skies in upper 30s, tonight mid-20s, and the clouds move in. Tomorrow, near 40, and skies will be mostly clear again. There's a slight chance of snow late Thursday night. It's 27 degrees in Boston, and we're coming up on 8 o'clock. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Medical Center, modeling a new kind of excellence in healthcare built on clinical expertise and equity. Learn more about rewriting healthcare at bmc.org. I'm healthcare reporter Martha Biebinger, and this is 90.9 WBUR FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The White House is promising to impose major sanctions on Russia in response to opposition leader Alexei Navalny's death. It's Wednesday, February 21st. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, the U.S. Supreme Court hears arguments today as industry groups and three states challenge a federal law that's intended to limit air pollution. Also this hour. South Carolina will vote on Saturday, but on Sunday, I'll still be running for president. I'm not going anywhere. A defiant Nikki Haley is vowing to stay in the race for the Republican presidential nomination despite being far behind Donald Trump. Plus, we hear from one of the many locals who enjoy a daily dip in Massachusetts' freezing winter waters. People always ask, how long do you stay in? And I tell them until I get to calm. Mostly sunny in 30s today. It's 8.01, now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Following the death of Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny, the White House is telegraphing what it's calling a major package of sanctions against Russia. As NPR's Giles Snyder reports, these are expected to be announced later this week. Before leaving Washington for a campaign swing through California, President Biden told reporters that he will not discuss details about the new sanctions until after they are unveiled. We'll have a major package announced on Friday. White House National Security Council spokesman John Kirby says the sanctions will be aimed at holding Russia accountable for Navalny's death. And quite frankly, for all its actions over the course of this vicious and brutal war that has now raged on for two years. The sanctions come on top of the wide-ranging actions the Biden administration imposed after Russia invaded Ukraine. The new measures against Russia will be announced on the eve of the two-year anniversary of the war. Giles Snyder, NPR News. The Biden administration says it plans to forgive more than $1 billion in federal student loan debt. As NPR's Hiba Ahmed reports, the Education Department says the move will affect more than 150,000 borrowers who qualify. A borrower must be enrolled in the federal government's Saving on a Valuable Education or SAVE plan, been in repayment for at least 10 years, and have initially borrowed $12,000 or less in federal student loans. In an interview with NPR, Education Secretary Miguel Cardona said this round of relief targets low-income borrowers. I believe the benefits of our borrowers who are falling into default, being able to get back on their feet and contribute to the economy will help our country move forward. And without question, this is also contributing to the growth of communities. Eligible borrowers will begin to be notified today. Hiba Ahmed, NPR News. A federal magistrate judge has ordered the release of an FBI informant. Prosecutors say Alexander Smirnov has lied about an alleged scheme involving President Biden and his son Hunter. 
They allege he lied to the FBI. They also claim Smirnov has extensive ties to Russian intelligence. And prosecutors say that Smirnov says people tied to Russian intelligence were involved in passing along a story about Hunter Biden. The Alabama Supreme Court has ruled that frozen embryos can be considered children under state law. The decision comes from a case involving the IVF process, where people can freeze embryos until choosing to implant them. Mary Ziegler is a law professor at the University of California, Davis. She says the ruling is bound to deeply affect people who want to use this method for pregnancy. Well, if embryos are persons under this ruling, that could have pretty profound downstream complications for how IVF is performed. So in IVF, generally more embryos are created than are implanted. They're stored. Sometimes they're donated or destroyed, depending on the wishes of the people pursuing IVF. You're listening to NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Governor Healy's nomination of Gabrielle Wolohosian to the state's highest court goes before the governor's council today. Healy plans to introduce Wolohosian at the session. That's despite the controversy over her naming of former romantic partner to the high court. WBOR's Deborah Becker reports. When the governor nominated appeals court judge Wolohosian to the Supreme Judicial Court two weeks ago, Healy said there was no one more qualified. The governor said a five-person committee she assembled to vet potential SJC nominees unanimously recommended Wolohosian. But the Massachusetts Republican Party said it's highly inappropriate for the governor to select a former partner. According to multiple reports, Healy and Wolohosian were together for 12 years and separated in 2019. The governor Governor now lives with a new partner. If confirmed by the governor's counsel, Wolohosian would take the seat vacated by retired Justice David Lowey. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Deborah Becker. State officials are revoking some state grant funding in Milton. The town will no longer be eligible for more than $140,000 in grants for seawall improvements. It also won't be able to get state housing grants. The Healy administration warned Milton that it would lose out on state funding if it failed to comply with the MBT Communities Law. That law requires communities served by the MBTA to establish multifamily housing districts near public transit. The chair of the Massachusetts Gaming Commission has announced she's retiring. Kathy Judd-Stein says she plans to step down at the end of her term next month. Adam Frenier reports. Judd Stein was appointed to the job by then-Governor Charlie Baker in 2019. During her tenure, she led the commission through some challenging issues, including the temporary shutdown of the state's casinos due to the pandemic and the rollout of sports betting. Judd Stein praised the team at the MGC for their work during her time, and she was asked what advice she had for her successor. There's no particular um, blueprint for the job. It's an exciting opportunity where important issues that affect the public and private interests of the Commonwealth intersect. Governor Maura Healy thanked Judd Stein for her efforts and said she looked forward to finding an experienced leader to chair the commission. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Adam Frenier. It's 8.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by ThoughtForms Custom Builders, committed to building high-performance, healthy homes and spaces that bring people together. Supporting NENSA's John Ogden Youth and Introductory Programming. Learn more at thoughtforms-corp.com and nensa.net. 
The Bruins skate against the Edmonton Oilers tonight at 10 in Canada. Meanwhile, Matthew Slater announced his retirement on Tuesday after 16 seasons with the New England Patriots. In a statement, he said, quote, I have given all that I possibly can to respect and honor the game. Mostly sunny today. We'll have highs in the upper 30s. Clouds move in tonight and lows will be in the mid-20s. Clearing overnight for a mostly sunny day tomorrow. Highs will be near 40. It's 27 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include Charles Schwab, committed to putting clients first, with financial consultants ready to serve clients and 24-7 live help. Learn more at schwab.com and the listeners who support this NPR station. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm E. Martinez. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Leila Faldil. The Biden administration is expanding its student loan forgiveness. And in just a few minutes, Steve speaks with the Secretary of Education, Miguel Cardona, about how a new student debt relief program will work. But first, the U.S. Supreme Court today hears arguments in an environmental case that centers on the obligation to be a good neighbor. Several states and energy companies want the justices to block a federal rule meant to limit ozone air pollution. NPR's Carrie Johnson reports. At the heart of the dispute is part of the Clean Air Act known as the Good Neighbor Provision. It's designed to help protect people from serious health problems, including early death, because of pollution that floats downwind from neighbor states. Richard Lazarus is a law professor at Harvard. Air pollution doesn't respect state borders. States like Wisconsin, New York, and Connecticut can struggle to meet federal standards and reduce harmful levels of ozone because of emissions from coal plant smokestacks and natural gas pipelines that drift across their borders. But one of the primary reasons why Congress passed this law in 1970 was the one place you could not trust the states to do it on their own was when there was interstate air pollution. Vicki Patton is general counsel at the Environmental Defense Fund. Patton says these bedrock protections can save lives. There are children, there are older adults, people who work outside in the summer, and people who are afflicted by asthma who are at very, very serious risk. And this case is just about asking those upwind polluters to do their fair share. Three of those upwind states, Ohio, Indiana, and West Virginia, are asking the Supreme Court to freeze the good neighbor plan while they pursue an appeal with a lower court in the D.C. Circuit. The justices agreed to hear arguments under their emergency docket. It's only the third time since 1971 that the Supreme Court is hearing arguments on one of these procedural applications. That's Stephen Vladek. He's a law professor at the University of Texas and author of a book on the court's emergency actions. Vladek says the other two cases centered on vaccine mandates during the height of the COVID pandemic. Of the good neighbor case, Vladek says. If this is an emergency, what isn't? You know, there are lots of federal policies that are going to have massive stakes and they're going to have massive stakeholders on both sides. It's not at all obvious why this case merits this kind of special treatment. He says traditionally the Supreme Court goes last after a case has made its way through the lower courts. This case hasn't really gone very far at all. I mean, the only thing that's happened in this entire litigation to date is that the D.C. Circuit, the Federal Appeals Court, refused to give the same thing that they're now asking the Supreme Court for, refused to basically pause the rule at the beginning of the litigation. 
Lawyers for the states and companies challenging the good neighbor rule declined to talk on tape before today's arguments. In court papers, they call the EPA rule a disaster in a shell of itself. That's because the plan originally applied to 23 states, but lower courts have paused it in about half of them for a bunch of different reasons. These lawyers say the state should not have to shoulder the costs for what they say is an unlawful federal mandate. But environmental advocates say many of those obligations won't kick in until 2026, giving big polluters a couple of years to prepare. Richard Lazarus at Harvard Law School says to win a pause at the Supreme Court, the states challenging the rule will have to show they're likely to win on the merits and they're suffering serious harm. Lazarus says regulators have had a hard time at the Supreme Court over the past two years. First, the justices struck down the Clean Power Plan. Then they slashed the EPA's jurisdiction over the Clean Water Act. And just last month, they seemed skeptical about another case involving regulations for the fishing industry. It certainly seems like a court that's sort of on a juggernaut to cut back in an aggressive way on sort of federal environmental law. Vicki Patton, whose environmental group submitted a friend of the court brief in the case, says she'll be watching closely. Industry has a responsibility to be a good neighbor under our nation's clean air laws, and I hope the Supreme Court does not upend those protections. There's no clear timetable for a decision from the justices. Carrie Johnson, NPR News, Washington. Today, the Biden administration is extending its student loan forgiveness. Ever since the Supreme Court struck down the president's bid to erase hundreds of billions of dollars worth of student loans, the administration has been seeking other ways to do almost the same thing. It's relied on a different law to announce several new forms of forgiveness. And the latest announcement is coming months ahead of schedule. The U.S. is offering forgiveness to people who have been out of school for years and still have not been able to pay their debts, even though they are small debts by college tuition standards, $12,000 or less. Education Secretary Miguel Cardona came on the line to talk about it. So we're providing debt relief to people that need it the most. The folks that are targeted in this program are people who, uh, I think 75% of them are Pell eligible, meaning economically, they could use the support. We're also addressing the root cause of the issue, which is the cost of college has gotten out of control. So we're increasing accountability measures to make sure that there's a good return on investment in higher education. Altogether, we're fixing a broken system. You uh, just alluded to one question that I have about this when you said the cost of college is getting out of control. One thing that I wonder when I think about this debt forgiveness is if you create a kind of moral hazard, not for students, but for colleges. By paying off people's excessive debts, you encourage colleges to keep charging more and more. Is there a moral hazard involved in forgiving debts, which allows colleges to encourage people to borrow more in the future, probably? It's a moral hazard if you're only doing debt relief. But I believe we're balancing it out with accountability on colleges and making sure that the return on investment is clear. And we're putting pressure on those colleges that are charging $150,000, $200,000 for a degree that students could get for $50,000 somewhere else. 
I want people to recall that there was a Supreme Court ruling that overturned President Biden's debt forgiveness in 2023. And immediately after that Supreme Court ruling, the administration said it would proceed using as its authority a different law, a much older law than you had tried the first time. Would you explain how, if at all, your authority is different when relying on this 1965 law than it had been under the law the Supreme Court rejected for you? Sure. So the Supreme Court rejected the president's uh, most bold plan to provide debt relief in our country's history using the HEROES Act, and it was pandemic-related. The Supreme Court struck that down. However, the, the, the mentality of making higher education more affordable has never diminished in this administration. We use the Higher Education uh, Act, the authority that it gives me as Secretary of Education to, for example, make payment plans based on income. Uh, so we're using the negotiated rulemaking process to come up with a debt relief uh, plan that will positively impact Americans and give them an, an opportunity to, to get back on their feet, as I said earlier. And uh, we're unapologetic about this. Can this debt relief, in your view, survive any court challenge? And can this debt relief survive a change in presidential administrations? We're using the regulatory process, which we believe includes public comment and, and negotiations uh, with folks that don't agree with us. Uh, so we do believe through this process, it, it can uh, continue. But we recognize that no matter what turn we make, we're going to have folks challenging it. There are some that benefit from the system the way it was. And I expect to hear from them. And if I don't hear from them, that means I'm not pushing hard enough. Mr. Secretary, in moving up this announcement of the student loan debt forgiveness, some people will naturally wonder if your attention is on the right problem right now, because you're in the middle of serious delays with FAFSA, the standard college financial aid form. Uh, many people are going to get close to their college acceptance dates before they hear back from the federal government about financial aid. Are you on top of that problem? We absolutely are. Since day one, we've been fighting, whether it's fixing public service loan forgiveness, uh, doing the income-driven repayment adjustments. And with regard to FAFSA, yes, we're working aggressively there. And we recognize that uh, there are delays and we're working daily around the clock to make sure that we get the information as quickly as possible. We're moving in the right direction. Change is hard. We're focused on it. And as a parent of a high school senior myself, I recognize that delays are challenging. Um, but at the end of the day, the, what we're delivering is going to be better for the American people. Have you guys filled out the FAFSA? Yes. How's it going? Did you hear back? <laughs> my, my daughter looks at me and says, hey, Bob, when am I going to hear back? <laughs> Look, it, it, another issue, I have a, a sophomore in college. When he did the FAFSA two, three years ago, it was a long, tedious process. I remember how frustrating it was. For my other child, my youngest, 15 minutes, uh, that alone is going to make it much more accessible. I grant that the overall effort is to improve the process, but the immediate problem, as you know, is there's been this problem with calculations for adjustments for inflation. Uh, people are experiencing delays they would want to have heard in January, but may hear in March, and many people have college acceptance dates of May. Can you guarantee the public that they're going to get their information in time to think about their college decisions and answer on time? Uh, yes, and and we support those colleges that are stepping up and saying, you know, I'm going to push back the date. It is a, a major change. We recognize there are delays and those are frustrating. But at the end of the day, more students will get more aid, more access to college. And at the end of the day, that's the goal. Education Secretary Miguel Cardona, thanks for your time. Thank you.
Coming up on All Things Considered, Donald Trump's push to remake the Republican Party in his image has sometimes led to conflict. In conservative Horry County, South Carolina, a squabble over who is the official county Republican Party is shedding light on struggles the GOP faces elsewhere in 2024. To hear that story, listen to NPR on your smartphone, smart speaker, or on your reliable radio. This is NPR News. Good morning. Thanks for starting your Wednesday with WBUR. We're following news this morning of a ruling by the Alabama Supreme Court that fertilized eggs have the same rights as children. Also, two men have been charged with murder in the shooting death of a woman at a Kansas City Super Bowl celebration. And coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, a financial expert weighs in on how the proposed merger between Capital One and Discover may impact consumers. It's 819. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Museum of Science. Visit iconic spots around the globe to see how people are adapting to a changing climate in changing landscapes through May 5th, MOS.org. And MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, powering the engineering design workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science, MathWorks.com slash MOS. Take a break and have some fun with the news by playing the WBUR crossword puzzle each day. Five letters, digital trash. Two down, south of Ecuador. Play anytime at WBUR.org slash fun. Five across, biggest toy maker. Four down, rock concert pit. Play the WBUR crossword free every day at WBUR.org slash fun. Highs in the upper 30s today under mostly sunny skies. Tonight it grows cloudy as temperatures fall to the mid-20s. Skies clear a bit overnight and we'll have a mostly sunny day tomorrow. High temperatures will be around 40. It's 28 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Fisher Investments, Fisher is committed to helping clients stay on track to reach their financial goals and enjoy a comfortable retirement. FisherInvestments.com. Investing in securities involves the risk of loss. From Progressive Insurance with Snapshot, which monitors safe driving habits to determine a personalized rate at Progressive.com. Not available in California or from all agents. From SmartMouth, committed to the prevention of bad breath for 24 hours with zinc ion technology. SmartMouth products can be found nationwide at drugstores, grocery stores, and super centers, or at smartmouth.com. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez. And I'm Leila Faldin. It's the year of the dragon. And some people believe babies born in dragon years can be smart, successful, and rich. In China, that's meant more babies are typically born in dragon years, but the calculus of having a child is changing. NPR's John Ruich and producer Awen Sao spoke with two women in China, one pregnant with a dragon baby and one not, to hear their stories. Millie Gao is eight months pregnant, and she says she's having a child in part because of where she grew up, Shandong province, home of the ancient Chinese philosopher Confucius. The tradition of Chinese culture for the past 5,000 years is to cultivate the next generation. 
And people from Shandong respect this tradition even more, because Confucianism was born and developed there. And I can accept this. Our motivations are also very personal. My two grandparents had four children each. That means my parents have eight cousins in total, and every Lunar New Year, the whole family would gather together. And having four generations or even five generations in one room was moving. It's a scene she loved, and the 28-year-old hopes that when she gets old, she can be surrounded by a big family too. It's just the path there is kind of lonely. In general, people around me don't want to have children. 80% of them, I would say. I only have one good friend who had a baby last year, and I'm her only friend who's pregnant. And she does have concerns about bringing a child into the world. Top of mind is ensuring the kid gets a good education, and the high cost of that in Hangzhou, the city where she lives in eastern China. But she's confident it'll all work out for her dragon baby in the end. I don't think you should look at the bad side of having children. There are also some good aspects, like the fact that children give us love and companionship, and in the process of taking care of a child, we also grow. That's the kind of thinking the government is trying to encourage with propaganda and financial incentives. But it's an uphill battle. The average marriage age is rising. And last year saw a near 6% drop in the number of births, according to official statistics. The population decline was the largest since the famine of the Great Leap Forward more than 60 years ago. About an hour away by high-speed train in Shanghai, Nora Guo lives with a roommate and her two cats, Bao Bao and Bambi. She too grew up in northern China, where she says traditional values were strong. When I was in college, my thinking was simple. I would study, then find a job, and perhaps a stable boyfriend. And then get married and have children, a process just like the majority of the people would have. Suffice it to say, her thoughts have changed pretty dramatically since she studied abroad and moved to the big city a few years back. She says she has zero interest in kids now, or even marriage. It's a radical change from past generations, part of a quiet revolt by many women in today's China against tradition and authority. We often joke about the widowed marriage. It's a kind of marriage where the man thinks it's enough that he's a breadwinner and he doesn't need to pay much attention to the family or do much housework or share responsibilities in marriage. Demographers say the birth rate will continue to fall, and economists say that threatens to be a major drag on growth. But none of this is on Nora's mind. I might be a bit selfish, to be honest, but I don't want to sacrifice much of my time and energy, even my career, for family life. Kids are not in the cards for her, despite heavy pressure from her family back home. I'm not confident that I can provide my kids with good living conditions. Raising a child today isn't like it was when I was little. Back then, it was just another pair of chopsticks at the dinner table. Today, she says, it's prohibitively expensive. She's also put off by the toll that childbirth takes on a woman's body. And she has no interest in changing her lifestyle. All my time after work belongs to me. I can do whatever I want, I can also do nothing and just chill at home, play with my cats. For me, it's not about hobbies. The meaning of staying single and not having children is freedom. 
the freedom to choose what I want to do or what I don't want to do. And that's something the authorities are finding it hard to contend with. John Ruich, NPR News, Shanghai. You could say that Donald Trump hopes Americans will vote with their feet. The former president unveiled Trump-branded athletic shoes during a campaign stop in Philadelphia. NPR's Joe Hernandez got a peek at the new merch. Trump stopped by a sneaker conference in Philadelphia on Saturday to pitch the shoes called Never Surrender High Tops. This is something I've been talking about for 12 years, 13 years, and I think it's going to be a big success. The sneakers are a shiny gold color with an American flag on the back and a capital T on the side. The businessman turned politician showed them off to an adoring crowd. That's the real deal. That's the real deal. Trump also used the moment to encourage his supporters to vote. He's currently the frontrunner in the Republican presidential primary. We have to go out and vote. We got to get young people out to vote. The shoes were going for $399 a pair, but sold out just days after their debut. That dude's like a marketing genius, and he always goes where the hype is, so it kind of made sense. That's Dee Jackson, a fashion designer who helms the label Dee and Ricky with his brother. Jackson says the design of the shoe is nothing special, but it's more about the buzz the product creates, which is exactly what happened on the fashion blogs Jackson follows after Trump's announcement. Everybody's like, yo, I can't believe this happened. Like, what timeline are we in? And how does this guy have a sneaker? Like, how does it sell out? Like, it's just talk, talk, talk. Like, people are just, like, eating it up. Trump is no stranger to selling products bearing his name. He's sold Trump wine, steaks, and even a board game. The shoe debut came one day after a New York judge ordered Trump and the Trump Organization to pay around $355 million as part of a civil fraud case. Prosecutors alleged that Trump, his two oldest sons, and other associates inflated the value of properties and other assets for financial gain. Joe Hernandez, NPR News. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next, then coming up at 845 on Morning Edition. A local author and podcast host explains what she gets out of a daily dip in Massachusetts's freezing winter waters. It's 829. Join us at City Space on Wednesday, March 6th, a few days before the Oscars, for a conversation with New Yorker writer Michael Shulman. He'll be talking about his new book chronicling the last century of scandals, drama, and secrets from Hollywood's biggest night. Tickets are wbur.org slash events. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.gov and Boston University's Center for the Humanities. Presenting the acclaimed writer David Graham, February 28th at 7 p.m. in the Sci Center. Admission is free. Reservations are required at davidgrahambu.eventbrite.com. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. The British government is imposing sanctions on six people who led the penal colony where Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny died last week. Britain's foreign secretary says Russian authorities viewed Navalny as a threat and repeatedly tried to silence him. London accuses Russia of denying Navalny medical treatment. Russian officials say Navalny died suddenly. A federal magistrate judge is ordering the release of a former FBI informant. 
He's facing charges that include making false statements about President Biden and his son Hunter. As NPR's Ryan Lucas reports, prosecutors wanted the suspect to remain in custody while he awaited trial. Federal prosecutors argued that Alexander Smirnov is a flight risk and should be locked up pending trial. They say the 43-year-old has extensive ties to Russian intelligence and that he admitted to authorities following his arrest last week that individuals tied to Russia's intelligence services were involved in passing along a story about Hunter Biden. Smirnov has been charged with making false statements as well as creating a false and fictitious record. His attorneys argue that Smirnov is not a flight risk and should be released to await trial. Ultimately, a federal magistrate judge agreed and ordered Smirnov released on a personal recognizance bond. Ryan Lucas, NPR News, Washington. Wall Street futures are on the downside this morning. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. An investigation by Boston Public Schools finds Gardner Pilot Academy failed to adequately respond to allegations of sexual misconduct and bullying among its students. Superintendent Mary Skipper says administrators were aware of the incidents, but she says they did not report a majority of them as required by school district policy. Principal Erica Herman and other and another administrator were removed from their positions. Herman disputed the accusations. She tells the Boston Globe the school has one of the highest rates of reporting misconduct in the district. Faith leaders and activists in Massachusetts are helping to revive a national campaign aimed at getting more low-income people out to vote. The Massachusetts Poor People's Campaign says there are 1.3 million low-income voters in the state alone. The group's goal is to register most of those voters in time for the November elections. It says doing so will help address racism, poverty and health equity. The Boston Annual Children's Winter Festival kicks off later this morning with activities for kids and families on Boston Common. Liz Sullivan is with the Boston Parks and Rec Department. She says the event gives families something to look forward to in the winter. It is a long week for some families. Not everyone goes away. And we want to make sure that our city families have something outside to do, something to get the kids to burn off some energy, interact as a community. There's also hands-on activities from our park rangers and from our other, from our other partners where kids can do hands-on learning and, and STEAM activities. The department also plans to host open gym hours at Carter Field in the South End for families looking for activities later in the week. It's 8.33. WBUR supporters include Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com. The Boston Bruins head to Canada to face the Edmonton Oilers with both teams looking to build off of great seasons. Game time is 10 p.m. In NBA action, Boston looks to keep its six-game winning streak alive when the Celtics take on the Bulls in Chicago tomorrow at 8. Mostly clear skies today. Highs will be in the upper 30s. It grows a bit overcast tonight and temperatures will fall to the mid-20s. Then mostly clear skies again tomorrow and we'll have highs near 40. It's 29 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from the station. And from BritBox, with the goal of helping people discover a world of British TV, including new original series Archie, The Man Who Became Cary Grant, streaming at BritBox.com NPR. From Workday, with AI at the core of its platform, Workday is committed to delivering continuous innovation to help teams stay agile. Workday, the finance and HR platform for a changing world. 
and from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation at rwjf.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C. Two of the country's largest credit card issuers may be merging. Capital One plans to buy Discover Financial Services for more than $35 billion if regulators approve. To talk about what the proposed deal might mean for consumers, we turn now to Raj Date. He was the first deputy director of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. He's now a managing partner at the investment firm Fenway Summer. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being on the program. So I guess I want to start with, I think, what will be the big question on people's mind, because customers of Capital One and Discover, what will it mean for them? In general, and I hate to be anticlimactic, not very much. Uh, The fact of the matter is that these two firms, despite being giant credit card firms, are mostly complementary to each other. And as a consequence, I would not expect to see a ton of changes in terms of products or pricing or features. Um, indeed, like the strategic rationale here is mostly driven by the differences in the company. So for example, mm. Capital One has a way bigger small business franchise than Discover. Discover is more global than Capital One. But the most important strategic difference between the two is that Discover has a proprietary network of its own and Capital One does not. Is that what's driving this deal between the two companies? Because they're already pretty big. I think that's the biggest piece of it. That is to say, uh, there are some there's some flexibility and there's some services and product differentiation that you can provide if you are simultaneously the issuer of a credit card and the person who runs the network between, for example, the merchant and the issuing credit card bank. So on on the on the whole, that's probably a positive for Capital One strategically. I don't want to poo-poo the financial uh, metrics here either, though. I mean. Mm. The credit card business and banking in general are big fixed cost businesses. And, you know, do you need two legal departments? Do you need two finance departments, two tax, two compliance, two risk? No. So you're going to end up saving a lot of money in terms of the overall spend of the combined entity. And that that no doubt makes the financial picture quite a bit better. Now, this deal hinges on whether regulators will approve. So what will they consider when deciding whether to greenlight it? Uh, Sure, you're absolutely right. So this does need regulatory approval. I mean, being a bank, after all, gives you certain privileges. You have privileged access to deposits and privileged access to the central bank's payment network, etc. And with those privileges come a level of of oversight and supervision, and that's true here. So both the Federal Mm -hmm. Reserve and the uh, what's called the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, that's the supervisor of national banks, would have to approve this deal. And they'll mostly be focused on whether or not the combined entity is going to be a safe and sound institution and whether or not we should expect markets to be more or less competitive by virtue of their combination. Now, will there be scrutiny, though, to huge companies like this merging? I mean, is approval likely? I think this really is a coin toss. Uh, the reality is that the political winds very much are uh, uh, not favoring the combination of large firms right now. But on the other hand, like, you know, even if you combine these firms together, they're still, you know, Wells Fargo is still three times bigger. Bank of America is still four times bigger. Mm. JPM is, uh, JP Morgan is five times bigger. And even the network business, like this would be a meaningful addition to Discover's network uh, uh, business in terms of the number of transactions that go through. But the reality is MasterCard is five times bigger than Discover is today. Visa is like 10 times bigger in terms of volumes. So it's hard to make a case uh, uh, against the deal, but that's very much the way the political winds are blowing right now. So I think the companies have a lot in front of them. 
Raj Date is a managing partner at the investment firm Fenway Summer. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. It's four days until polls close on Saturday in the South Carolina Republican presidential primary. Yeah, while former President Donald Trump appears headed to another victory, the state's former governor, Nikki Haley, remains defiant. I feel no need to kiss the ring. I have no fear of Trump's retribution. I'm not looking for anything from him. Gavin Jackson with South Carolina Public Radio has been on the trail with Nikki Haley. He was in Greenville yesterday when she gave what her campaign called a state of the race speech, Gavin. So what message was Nikki Haley trying to put out there? Yeah, well, she doubled down on staying in this race like we heard, even with these high odds against her. Uh, And she is staying in until, quote, the last person votes. Her campaign knew that if they announced a big speech like this, pundits and others would assume she was going to drop out. She didn't. She did instead get a big piece of the news cycle. For example, Fox News carried that entire speech live. So the message that she's not dropping out is the same as it's been since she lost to Trump in Iowa and New Hampshire. And if polls are any indication, will face another loss, this time in her home state. But she's fighting this to the political death because she can. She's got plenty of money on hand, according to new FEC filings. And her campaign said it raised $1.6 million in Texas last week alone during a fundraising and campaign swing in that Super Tuesday state. So as much as she says she's not gearing up for a future run, should Trump lose to President Biden, as she predicts, uh, which in that case, she could always begrudgingly say, I told you so in the future, but not right now. Yeah. And, and one of the things we've heard from Nikki Haley is that she has not held back on attacking Donald Trump, but is the method behind the messaging evolving? Yeah, somewhat. She is sharpening that attack. You know, when people call for her to drop out, she used to say, we don't do coordinations in this country. And on Tuesday, that line shifted to this. People have a right to have their voices heard. And they deserve a real choice, not a Soviet-style election where there's only one candidate and he gets 99% of the vote. So speaking of Russia, she continues to needle Trump on his relationship with Russian President Vladimir Putin and call for him to speak out against the death of imprisoned Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny, whom she's called a hero. Again, drawing contrast between her and Trump, where he's silent, she's outspoken on so many international fronts over the course of this entire campaign cycle. She's been able to flex that international experience from her time at the U.N., uh, which, you know, she was at the United Nations under Trump to react clearly in real time to major world events such as wars, invasions and now the death of Navalny. Now, the perception has been that she's holding on by her fingertips and that South Carolina is so pro-Trump that it's going to make Nikki Haley look bad. So what's the reality? Yeah, that is very much the reality, but she's still drawing a lot of crowds, whether it's, you know, 50 or so folks in her hometown to hundreds and even thousands in bigger cities on her bus tour, which has been hitting all parts of the state over these past few days. So she's still seeing enough life here and she's able to reach and attract a broad spectrum of voters who she says are key to the future of the Republican Party. But how does she justify that she should stay in the race past this weekend? Yeah, that's the thing. She's still got plenty of money. Like I mentioned, the FEC filings for January came out showing her starting the month with about $14.5 million on hand. She spent nearly all of that, but replenished most of it and had $13 million on hand at the end of the month. So uh, some of her top fundraisers are saying that we're not prepared to fold our tents and pray at the altar of Donald Trump. So those people are clearly not alone at this. Her campaign is saying that she is the person and uh, that is kind of the reason to keep going. And to that point, they released her 11-stop schedule over seven Super Tuesday states, really reinforcing that if she gets blown out in her home state on Saturday, she's still going forward for as long as she can. All right, that's Gavin Jackson with South Carolina Public Radio in Clemson, South Carolina. Gavin, thanks. Thanks.
This is NPR News. Coming up in 10 minutes, the Marketplace Morning Report tells us about the meteoric rise of NVIDIA. It's one of the so-called Magnificent Seven tech stocks, and it reports its financial results for the fourth quarter later today. We'll hear about the possible impact on the market. Mostly sunny in upper 30s today. Tonight, mostly cloudy in mid-20s. Tomorrow, mostly sunny and near 40. It's 30 degrees in Boston. Now in business news, a U.S. appeals court is reviving a controversial lawsuit brought against a Cambridge drug maker. The 2020 lawsuit from nearly two dozen people alleges Sanofi Genzyme sold patients contaminated rare disease medicine between 2009 and 2012. The appeals court says those who filed the lawsuit still have legal standing to make their claims. That's despite a Massachusetts district court judge previously dismissing the case. Two startups launched by Cambridge-based flagship Pioneering are the latest Massachusetts biotech companies to be impacted by layoffs. Officials tell the Boston Business Journal Watertown Sonata Therapeutics is laying off 21 employees. Cambridge-based Ring Therapeutics says 19 people are being impacted by layoffs. Both companies say an analysis of resources led them to make the cuts. A virtual golf simulator is now open in Braintree. Players can practice their swing at Golf Lounge 18 at the South Shore Plaza. Owners tell the Patriot Ledger players can choose from more than 250 golf courses around the world. The newest location joins another in Peabody. It's 844. WBUR supporters include Boston Ballet's Winter Experience, celebrating the evolution of dance with two world premieres. Starts February 22nd. Tickets at bostonballet.org. And Bentley University's nationally ranked MBA and master's programs in technology, finance, and analytics. Become an essential force in today's evolving marketplace. You're listening to Morning Edition on WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. The polar bear plunge is having a moment. People have been diving into freezing cold waters for centuries, but plunges have recently been featured in photo essays, a documentary, and viral TikTok videos. To non-enthusiasts, it seems a little weird and even dangerous. But for people who take it up, daily dips can become a joyful and even essential activity. WBUR contributor Libby Delena started her cold water experience three years ago and never looked back. Here's her story. When I first saw the videos of people in giant tubs full of water and ice, honestly, I thought they were crazy. I couldn't imagine anything more terrible. But part of me wondered, could I do it? In the fall of 2020, during the early days of the pandemic, I was out for a walk on Plum Island with my son and a few friends. We were happy to be outside together instead of home, alone. On a whim, we decided to go in the water, and afterwards, on the beach, we looked at each other and started laughing. We hadn't felt so alive or so free since lockdown began. The next day, we went back and did it again. For most of my life, I've hated the cold. I think it stemmed from a bad experience I had on a camping trip as a kid. I was freezing in my sleeping bag, but too shy to ask for help, so I spent the entire night shivering. The fear of the cold became a big part of my identity. The pandemic was a difficult time for all of us. 
But I was also facing some tectonic shifts in my personal life. My marriage was unraveling, my career felt murky, and my kids were out of the house making their way in the world. I felt overwhelmed and sad, but I was also determined to emerge from all of that uncertainty in a better place. I decided to take something I identified with, hating the cold, and test how porous it was. I thought getting in the freezing cold water would be miserable and hard, and it was. But after a while, I saw it as a way to redefine myself. When I got in the water, I could see things much more clearly. The longer I kept doing it, the less it was about the cold and the more it was about exposure. The physical challenge stripped everything away. I wasn't fragile, I was resilient. I wasn't dull or weary. I was joyful and funny and bright. And as it turns out, I didn't hate the cold. Now I get in the water five to six times a week. I dip in a bucket in my backyard or at the beach in Newburyport or a pond in Boxford. I almost always dip with a group of women, sometimes two, sometimes 50. Honestly, I don't know where I'd be without them. We laugh, we yelp. This is cold. Oh gosh, guys. We can hardly believe when we're hacking through the ice. People always ask, how long do you stay in? And I tell them until I get to calm. Everybody okay? Yes, it feels so good. It feels so good. I submerge, exhale, and relax. Staying in longer isn't better or braver or stronger. Just going in is all of those things. Okay, someone else can go first. Getting out of the water is the hardest part because that's when your body temperature plummets. You made that look very easy. I know you did. This is our happy hour. I immediately put on a giant coat and inside that coat I wiggle off my bathing suit. Don't worry, we are not that modest. Decorum goes out the window when you've got to get warm. Best part of the day! <laughs> There's no better medicine than this water and these people. Thanks to this practice, I feel more like myself than ever. The cold water reminds me what I'm capable of. Libby Delena is an author and podcast host. This piece was produced by Chloe Axelson. Coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR, it's the BBC News Hour with the story of a man standing trial in Denmark for defrauding streaming services, including Spotify and Apple Music. Prosecutors say he uploaded bogus songs and played them endlessly on repeat in order to make thousands of dollars in royalties. It's 850. This week, China's Coast Guard began patrolling the waters near the Pasquadors, or Penghu, the tiny archipelago of islands tucked between Taiwan and China. 
The fishers of Penghu see firsthand the tensions between the two places. Hear that story on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen again after 4 today on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Wednesday morning. In vitro fertilization clinics in Alabama are considering next steps after the state Supreme Court ruled that frozen embryos are children. President Biden says the White House plans to impose major sanctions against Russia following the death of opposition leader Alexei Navalny. And Missouri prosecutors are charging two adults with second-degree murder following the shooting that killed one person and injured dozens of others at the Kansas City Chiefs Parade last week. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Arts Thursdays at Harvard, back with free public art events open to all every Thursday night, harvard.edu slash artsthursdays. And Clark, where chef demonstrations of Wolf appliances help you compare features and taste the results of oven, cooktops, ranges, and more. ClarkLiving.com slash demo. Upper 30s and mostly sunny today. It grows cloudy tonight and we'll have temperatures in the mid-20s, near 40 tomorrow and mostly sunny again. It's 32 degrees in Boston. Who was buying homes before interest rates really spiked? Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Wall Street Journal's The Future of Everything, a weekly podcast that covers the breakthroughs that could transform lives. New episodes available every Friday. And by Twilio Segment. Segment brings customer data together for real-time insights, so companies know each individual like they are their only customer. Learn more at Segment.com. I'm David Brancaccio in New York. 30-year mortgages are running above 7% today, down from 8% in October, but not the threes and fours that we used to see. The National Association of Realtors has a new report showing that from the decade that ended in 2022, home ownership swelled, and the realtors break this down by race. Between 2012 and 2022, the National Association of Realtors says homeownership increased by nearly 11 million people. Homeownership rates rose to record highs among Latino and Asian American populations. While more African Americans bought homes as well, the rate of homeownership within that population still lagged at 44%, rising just one and a half points over a decade. But despite the gains experienced by minority groups, the vast majority of the new homeowners over the 10 years measured in the report were white. The National Association of Realtors says that points to pervasive barriers facing minority groups, including disproportionately high student loan debt burdens. Minority homebuyers are also more likely to be first-time homebuyers, without the benefit of equity built up from a previous home to help put down a bigger down payment for the next one. These challenges preceded the rapid rise in mortgage interest rates over the last two years, which has made homeownership less affordable. I'm Nova Safo for Marketplace. The Dow Jones Industrial Average is not a law of physics. It's people choosing 30 stocks they feel represent the economy. And there's news a little company called Amazon will replace Walgreens on that list of 30. This compensates for Walmart splitting its stock, which had the effect of reducing the weight of retailing in the Dow. Now, Amazon is also media and cloud computing, etc. Amazon goes into the Dow on Monday. Amazon stock went up 1.2% in pre-market trading here. But overall, Dow futures are down 2 tenths percent. NASDAQ futures are down 6 tenths percent. 
Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Progressive. Progressive Commercial Insurance protects small businesses from retailers to tradespeople. Progressive covers a variety of business needs with a range of coverages. More at ProgressiveCommercial.com. And by C3 Generative AI. Verified, traceable answers. Secure, hallucination-free, LLM agnostic, IP liability-free. Learn more at C3.ai. And by Charles Schwab. Schwab believes every investor deserves to work with a firm they can count on, with financial consultants ready to serve clients and 24-7 live help. We watch one documentary film a month that touches on marketplace themes for what we call econ extra credit. This month, it's the doc called Invisible Beauty, film as autobiography, chronicling the life and influence of model and entrepreneur Beth Ann Hardison and her push over decades to diversify the fashion industry. Today, we consult fashion historian Shelby Ivy Christie. Thank you for joining us. I'm so excited to be here and talk about this topic. Things come into fashion, they go out of fashion. Alas, a commitment to diversity seems to be one of those things. From your perspective, it gets embraced for a season or two, then goes away? Yeah, definitely. I think when we look at the state of diversity in fashion, it appears to be very fad focused. You know, we saw all of the black squares go up in solidarity in 2020. And then here we are and many DEI roles are being eliminated from organizations. We're seeing runways go back to very thin body types. We're going back to the very white, thin, blonde hair, blue-eyed archetype in fashion. And even beyond the runway into these boardrooms, into these organizations, we're still not seeing diversity. We've been inviting our audience members to watch Invisible Beauty about, of course, Bethann Hardison. There are accounts in this movie of people accepting as an article of faith that if you put black models on the cover of a magazine, it's not going to sell, which of course has been disproven over and over. Yeah, it's jarring to hear 40, 50, 60 years later that these are still some of the challenges that we're having. Even that comment implies that whiteness is the standard and everything else is the other. And so that attitude in the industry, I think, is still very much so prevalent. Usher was just on the cover of Vogue and there was a woman next to him, a white woman and similar with LeBron James's cover. Even sometimes where there is a black person there, there has to be a white person present to counter it. Even if they have absolutely nothing to add to the context, add to the editorial, you know, these are things that are still happening. Yeah, it's the January 17th Vogue. Here it is. We have these charming young kids in full football getup. There's Usher, who's holding one of the young football players on his shoulder, and there's a big football. And then kind of from who knows where is a white model dressed all fancy, and you're not quite sure exactly why she's there. Not to take anything away from the model, she's gorgeous and talented, but in the context of trying to celebrate Usher, his upcoming Super Bowl performance, he is a legend and an icon in his own right. He's been, you know, a talent for 30 years, pumping out excellent work. Why is this person in this image? Why, when it is Black talent or talent of color, there has to be a white proxy there to seemingly give credibility or make it more palatable or whatever the conversation might have been behind the scenes about the sellability, profitability. I get from your answer that what you may not be able to prove but suspect is that someone in the fashion industry, someone making choices at Vogue, may have thought, well, you got to shoehorn a white person in there. 
Yeah, and it goes a level deeper than that. Not only is it just the Vogue editorial staff, you're also answering to the sales team and the publisher about what brands are in that picture, right? What do they have on? It might be ad related. It might be brand related. What ads are in that book? And then you also might be to the service of those brands, right? And if they're spending a lot of advertising dollars somewhere, they want to have say. I don't know if that's mm -hmm. the case in this image, but it is important about who is at those tables too, right? Who is in those rooms and those decision makers on the brand side as well. Shelby Ivy Christie, fashion and costume historian. Thank you very much. Our documentary this month is called Invisible Beauty on Hulu or rentable from other streamers. I'll talk with the subject of that film, Beth Ann Hardison herself, later this week here. What can we learn about economics, money, markets, business from movies? There's our weekly newsletter for that. Go to Marketplace Econ Extra Credit. For more information and a free sign-up button. In New York, I'm David Brancaccio with the Marketplace Morning Report. We are from APM, American Public Media. We'll have two more mostly sunny days before some rain on Friday. Then the sun returns for the weekend. Today, mostly clear skies in upper 30s. Tonight, mid-20s, and the clouds move in. Tomorrow, near 40, and skies will be mostly clear again. There's a slight chance of snow late Thursday night. It's 33 degrees in Boston, and the BBC News Hour is coming up next. I'm executive producer of podcasts Ben Brock Johnson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.